Most holy God, author of our being, we ask you to open now the eyes of our understanding that we might behold wondrous things from your law. We ask you to give us your Holy Spirit, who is the interpreter of truth. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. Um, so tonight is a little bit of introductory materials, and uh, I hope that this, this portion of time can eventually serve... Uh, you know, on Sundays, I don't get the opportunity to have long, lengthy conversations with all of you guys, much to your disappointment. Um, and, and I know there's times where I preach, there's lingering questions you have, what about this? Maybe I said something, maybe you don't want to email me, and then, you know, maybe you forget about it, maybe you remember it, but... Um, I would like there to be more easy access for you to be able to ask me questions that are either just, you know, questions you had as you were doing your Bible reading or questions from a sermon or it could really be about anything. So one of the reasons for us having doing this format at all, a little more informal, is uh, to give you guys that opportunity. So um, please, please do uh, make use of that. And I'm going to try to uh, leave you know, five, ten minutes at the end of each of these kind of lessons for, for that kind of open uh, question and answer. It could be related, probably most likely, to the lesson, but we're not limited to that. So if you want to ask a question that has nothing to do with this lesson, um, I, I might try to answer it. I might say uh, the answer will take too long for me to attempt. Um, I'll email you. But Kind of anything goes during that portion, and I'll try not to tell you if it's a really dumb question that you asked. That that was a dumb question. Uh, I'll try not to, but I make no promises, right? Um, okay, well, uh, let me get into my notes. I I've tried to limit myself to writing about 1,500 words, which is typically about 15 minutes of lecture time. But I also want you guys to feel free to uh, interrupt me, raise your hand, you know, middle of a sentence. And hey, uh, what about this? Uh, so think about this more like we're in a classroom. This is a little bit more of a dialogue, not just me uh, monologuing up here. Um, so with that, let's begin uh, into lesson one. So this evening, I want to begin a new series with you that I've, I've entitled, is a long title, The Architecture of Reality, Sacred Time and Sacred Place in Holy Scripture. So uh, let me give you the goal of this series, which is going to probably take us a year or more to get through, because we're only doing this two times a month. So we're going we're gonna to do a slow burn, a slow plod for the next year or so. Uh, who knows how long this will take. But the goal is, uh, I want to uh, familiar, familiarize you guys uh, with really the most important symbols in the Bible. So... You open up your Bible, you do kind of a, a yearly Bible reading plan. You're reading through Genesis, there's a lot of awesome stories. You get into Exodus, there's plagues, there's Passover, and then you hit chapter 25 in Exodus, and for the next 15 chapters is uh, dimensions, cubits, furniture, strange descriptions of uh, animals and tents and architecture, and it can be really hard to slog through that. But if you do, uh, and by the way, it's like God telling them everything to do, and then 
them doing it. It's just like, that's, that's 15 chapters. And then you get to Leviticus, and it's like, all right, now let me tell you about all the different sacrifices there are. And there's some cool stories in there where like Nadab and Abihu get killed by fire, and you're like, okay, finally some action again. But then we're back into laws about sacrifices, leprosy, you know, uh, all sorts of really strange and foreign things. And Yet, as I hope you've gotten this as, we, as we're um, going through the Gospel of Mark, um, that is the background, that is the symbolic background for so much of what we're studying in the Gospels. So uh, a lot of people, they start, as they should, just reading the Gospels, but there's so much that will just go way over your head in the Gospels. Passages that you think you know really well, you actually have no idea what they're talking about because you need to understand the Old Testament first, because that's that was what was in Jesus's head. He's the one who wrote the Old Testament. And so he's interacting with this in a really profound way. So uh, that's kind of the first goal is to familiarize us all with the basic symbolic structure of uh, the Bible and especially the Old Testament. Um, and then connected to this, I want you to understand what those signs or symbols signify. So it's one thing to learn about a sign. It's another thing to learn about the reality it signifies, and a lot of people get confused at this point. They either conflate the two or don't know how to distinguish them, and um, I'll demonstrate in this, um, in this little lesson uh, how we can do that. So uh, I'll pause there. Any questions just right off the bat about where we're going? All right. Um, so how are we going to accomplish this uh, high and uh, difficult task. Well, we're going to focus on the literal architecture and furniture of uh, primarily two structures, but we might uh, go beyond this. But we're going to study the tabernacle and the temple. These are, you know, for all intents and purposes, the two most important physical structures in the history of the world. Tabernacle, Solomon's temple, there's Ezekiel's temple, which is a spiritual one, but there's a second temple, which Jesus eventually destroys. And these are all types and shadows of something more real, even than the physical things you can hold and touch and see, at which the disciples were admiring, uh, the bricks of the temple in Jerusalem. Those things, Scripture tells us, are actually signs, the concrete things, the things you can touch and feel, those are actually shadows of something more substantive, more real. So that's what we're going to start to uh, look at and engage with. Uh, so my hope is by the end of this series in a year or two, um, that you're able to, in, in your kind of imagination, close your eyes and just be able to kind of walk through the tabernacle and the temple as if you were to close your eyes and walk through your house. You know, there's the kitchen, here's the living room. You could kind of blindfold and you could generally work out where things are. Well, scripture, God included these things in his word, that which is to be read until the end of the world. He put all of those things in there for a reason. He could have, if he wanted to, uh, drawn pictures for us. He could have given us a little picture Bible instead. But instead, he chose to include in words... Um, all of these details about buildings and sacrifices and all sorts of strange, to us, rituals 
for us to reflect upon and not to just stop with those signs and symbols and structures, but to be led um, through those things, from those things up into the heavenly reality. So um, let me pose a question and then uh, give you kind of a short answer and then a longer answer. So uh, why study the architecture, furniture, and did I mention we're going to study the calendar also as well? Um, That's the sacred time part. So we'll study uh, tabernacle, temple, and also the Hebrew calendar. Um, Why do this? Well, the short answer is because God has put it in his word and it takes up large chunks of scripture. Uh, And then secondly, uh, as I said, these are all shadows of the substance that is Christ, the church, and the new covenant. So if the gospel, the message of salvation, was a literal physical building, uh, it would look like the tabernacle. It would look like the temple. So as we're studying buildings, structures, we're actually studying the message of salvation, how uh, God and man can dwell together again. So let me give you just a few proof texts for this. If, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to follow along. But, um, and by the way, uh, if any of you guys are note takers, I will put all of these notes um, up on my website. So you don't need to worry about trying to jot everything down if you don't want. So let me give you a few proof texts of this. Uh, Colossians 2, 16 to, se- to 17 says this, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is of Christ. So think about that. This is in reference primarily to the Hebrew festival calendar, right? So these were commands from God uh, for them. And Paul says, now that Christ has come, he's the substance and those observances, those calendar observances, those food and drink observances, those were, were like a shadow. And now that the body has come, we do not need to abide by them. Uh, likewise, here's another example. This is Hebrews 10.1. Uh, it says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So if you know the book of Hebrews, it's interacting with the reality of the old covenant and how Christ has come and fulfilled what the old covenant pointed to. And if you were a Jew who was uh, you know, commanded and it was to, to be pious was to go to the temple and offer your sacrifices, God commanded it. Well, you're going to need a really strong, powerful reason to not go and do those things anymore. Think about uh, someone telling you, now we worship God not on the seventh day, but on the first day. Right? There's still people called, you know, they're called Seventh-day Adventists. There's still people who think we should we were wrong to actually make that move. So uh, for a Jew, a pious Jew hearing these things, this is a very like radical idea. And it's one that we can kind of assume and take for granted that we don't have to do, do these things. So uh, a lot of these uh, passages are kind of proof texts for why we are not observing the ceremonial law, why we are not uh, forced by becoming Christians to also become Jews. So the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. 
You needed Christ's once and for all sacrifice to bring an end to those animal sacrifices. I'll give you one last proof text. This is Hebrews 9, 23 to 24. And it's talking about uh, the sprinkling of the tabernacle with blood. So you'd sprinkle something to make it holy. It says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of these things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So there's patterns that the patterns there is referring to the tabernacle. There are figures or antitypes would be what it uh, is in Greek. Uh, there's these patterns, these figures, these types, these shadows. And over and over again, it's saying the substance is Christ. The substance is the church. The substance is the new covenant. So rituals, actions, furniture even, Uh, of the old covenant. These are all patterns and figures of the true and heavenly things. And eventually we're going to like go in depth looking at what, what did the altar signify? What's an altar? What is fire? We're going to ask questions like, what is water? (laughs) What is water for in scripture? What is the tent? Why is it made out of badger skins or dolphin skins? Why are there three layers to it? Why is there an incense altar? What is a lamp? What is bread? What is a table? Like these things that are just, uh, some of these things are common to us, some of them are not, but those are all signs. There's something more significant about a lamp. And we're going to look at what, uh, it'll be really fun when we get into, uh, into that. I think it'll open your eyes to a lot of uh, other things. All right, oh, any questions there uh, before I get into this next section? All right. We'll continue on. Um, so here's a question for you. It, am I echoing out there? I feel like I'm... Okay. Check, 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 check. Okay. Uh, so in, in Scripture, what is the very first pattern that we have in the Bible? This is kind of an easier question. What's the very first pattern that we have in the Bible? So day and night, yep, what, what else did I hear out there? Evening, morning, yeah, seven days. So uh, the creation week, yeah. So the creation week, Genesis 1, how the Bible begins, this is the most important structure, foundation for everything else that comes after it. So if you understand Genesis 1, which is not an easy text to understand, like these texts were meant to be read literally hundreds and thousands of times, okay? So for us who have many kinds of books that could be read and have, you know, all this text on our phones all the time, imagine you didn't have that and you just had one text and it was the book of Genesis. How many times do you think you would read that thing? Well, that's the level, uh, that's the density of meaning that is contained in Holy Scripture. You cannot exhaust its depths. And if you read the book, uh, if you read Genesis, Genesis 1, and moreover, if you read it in Hebrew, it is this like mind-blowing poetic pattern and structure. And you can catch a lot of it in, in English, but there's even crazy things happening in Hebrew as well. And this is the foundational pattern for everything that happens afterwards. So let me just... Uh, gesture with you towards some of the symbolic structure in the creation week. So 
God's work of creation in six days and then rest on the seventh. That is the pattern for everything that comes after. God forms for three days and then fills for the next three days. So this is the pattern, three days of forming, three days of filling, then a day of rest. Moreover, if you look at Genesis 1, you'll notice that God also does a lot of dividing or separating. So this is one of the things that God does. He takes hold of something. He makes a distinction, light, day, uh, morning, evening, uh, waters below, waters above. He's starting to do what any of us would do when we first move into a place. We start kind of structuring stuff. Maybe we will put a couch here, put a table here. We start to divide up rooms. We put walls up, right? So just like you would, you would build a house, this is kind of what Genesis 1 is doing. It's, it's creating the house that is uh, the universe where man is going to live. So on day one, he forms light and day. And then corresponding to it, on day four, he puts lights into the sky to uh, govern the day and the night. On day two, he separates waters above from waters below. And then on day five, corresponding to it, he fills the waters below with fish and the heavens above with birds. On day three is when he separates dry land from the seas and he plants herb-yielding trees. And then on day six, that's our day. That's the day we're created. And he places us in the land along with the animals. So God forms a space and then he fills it. And typically how he forms the space is by some kind of division, some kind of separation. And then you see this even uh, fractaling down into man himself. So God creates man, then he divides the man, creates woman, then he brings the woman back together, and then they bear children. So there's this kind of like breaking apart, bringing back together, breaking apart, bringing back together. And this is just like the way that God made the world. And we're continuing to participate in this miracle of God uh, filling uh, the, the world with his image. Um, so creation week's the foundational pattern. And if you think about the creation week, what, what would you say is the, the main point or the telos or the purpose of the creation week? What is it pointed at? What is it culminating with? Any ideas? So showing his might, so showing uh, that he's the creator, good. What else? Okay, yeah, so he, uh, maybe we could say marriage or the, the companionship of Adam and Eve. That's, that's a kind of climax of the creation account that's getting then into, into Genesis 2. So something a little more simple, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that would be like, what is the high point of creation? It's mankind and then the woman. She's the glory of, of the man. So we, we know based on that, that man is more important than the sea creatures, right? Just in the order of things, even though the, the creatures were made, the sea creatures were made first, they were made a whole day before us, there's something more important about man, right? You learn that just from, from Genesis 1. Um, Think about why seven days? Why not five days of creation or 10 days of creation or some other number, right? No, okay. Well, where did the idea of completion come from, right? So, yeah, that would be a kind of a circular argument, right? So so, uh, the thing that the creation account is kind of pointed at is rest, right? Why, Why work for six days? 
Well, eventually, so that on the seventh, you can rest, survey the work, and do what God did. You judge, you judge what you created, and he says, it's very good. So there's, there's a level of judgment that takes place within uh, the creation account. So the whole creation account is pointed towards this uh, idea of rest. Now, if you think about what rest is, uh, this is not an easy question. What does it mean that God rested? Uh, you would be wrong to think that it was because he was tired, okay? He, he created the world and oh, he just ran out of creation juice or something like that. But when you reflect on the creation account, you see the point of rest is actually to give man rest. It, uh, we find out later, God invites us into his rest. That's what it says in Hebrews 4. So what all of creation is pointed towards is actually creating a space and creating a time, a whole day, in which God and man can just be together, live together. Think about the world before the fall. There was man, there was woman, there's the animals, and there's God in communion with them. That is what the whole point of creation is. It's for God and man to live together. And creation is the house he made for us to dwell in. And more specifically, in Adam's case, that their house is where? In a garden. So God creates a special place in Eden that's a garden. And that's, that's their home, and God wants to give them rest. He wants them to participate in his rest. He wants to share that rest with him. So this is the picture that Scripture gives us for what, uh, how, how things were supposed to be. Right? We were supposed to work for six days and rest on the seventh and look back at our, back at our work and say, it's a job well done. And we enjoy fellowship with our wife, with our children, but mo- most importantly, with the one who created us. So you could say this is kind of like the theme of all themes in the Bible, and it's what the whole Bible is about. Uh, It's what human history is still about. Uh, Think about how the Bible ends. So it starts with creating, God creating the world, and on the seventh day, resting, communing with man. And this is how it ends. This is uh, Revelation 21, 1 to 3. This is what John says. He says, I saw a new heaven... And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of, se- out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God." So if you want to know, like, what is the story of the Bible, it's about God coming and dwelling with man. And then once the fall happens, once sin is interrupted, well, now we can't live, we can't live with God anymore, right? We're banished, we're kicked out of Eden, now we're going to die, we're going to experience alienation from God. And so the whole story of Scripture is God making a way for us to live together again. That, that's, it's really Kind of that basic. That's the basic substructure of all of scripture and all of human history. And God is going to show, uh, demonstrate that story, that point that I want to live with you guys. I want to live with you guys. Here's the rules if we're going to live together. 
Clearly, we could not live with him for very long in the garden because we did just the one thing he told us not to do, right? And so God's like, all right, if we're going to live together, here's what's going to need to happen. Here's what needs to happen. Uh, I'm going to have these people called priests. They're going to kill an animal, one in the morning, one in the evening. When you guys have emissions of blood or you have leprosy or any kind of nocturnal emission, uh, you can't come and see me. You can't come to uh, my holy place. See, I'm, I'm in this most holy place, and there's only one guy in the nation who can come in there and just one time a year. Because that's how holy God is, and that's how unholy we are. And so, like, this is what God is trying to teach us about ourselves, about him, with the structure of the tabernacle, with the different gradations of holiness. And then it gets amplified more and more as we move through the Bible until we get to now where, where does God dwell? Well, he dwells, dwells here. He dwells within us. Paul says, you now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's something that is very easy for us to not feel the weight of unless you first understood who could actually go in the temple uh, before? And now God is saying, like, you are a temple? Like, that is a whole nother level of holiness that has, that's new in the history of the world. And, and you didn't have to kill anything for God to come and dwell in you. Well, you had to die, but you had to be baptized. But, right? So we're not really even going to understand our relationship with God until we go back and see how has God worked with man in times past, and we should come to a new appreciation of the many things that we enjoy now in the Christian church, getting to have this immediate access to God in prayer through Christ, and none of us have, has to you know, go to Jerusalem three times a month for a feast, as fun as that might have been, right? We, we get to gather with God, with the King every Lord's Day, and actually enter into heaven. That's what the holy place was. It, it's a symbolic uh, heaven of heavens.